Of course, we have a brand new book. We are up to the book of Vayikra, the book of Leviticus, and we have a parsha that talks all about sacrifices. Such an interesting subject, such an exotic subject. And I saw a short but absolutely exquisite piece from my new favorite book, this Fasemis, which is written by one of the great Hasidic masters. It's a really short piece. It has only 75 words. And if you're familiar with this book, with the Svasemes, he has a very unique style. He doesn't really finish sentences. He doesn't point to sources. Everything is like a hint, a one-liner. It's a little bit difficult to unpack, but that's what we do over here at the Parsha Podcast. So we're going to read this piece, go through it, try to unpack it, and see what we find. And I believe we will emerge with many valuable lessons about some very fundamental theological, cosmological precepts. I think this piece will illuminate the concept of what sacrifices are, how do they work. I think it will also show us a deeper dimension of what appears on the surface to be a very simple and mundane passage in the Torah and in Rashi. It also showcases us what man is, the variability of man, how man can become ascendantly great, but can also sink to very low points as well. It will sharpen the differentiation between the status of the individual and the collective, and perhaps it will also offer us a new appreciation for the very controversial principle of chosen people, what does that mean? And all this in 75 words. So let's begin. The parsha begins, Vayikra el Moshe, God called to Moshe, and he spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and you should tell them, when a man amongst you offers a sacrifice, you bring it from the cattle, you bring it from the herd, you bring it from the flock. That's the sacrifice that you offer to God. And Rashi, in verse 2, points out the fact that it starts off Adam, a man amongst you, who brings a sacrifice. And Rashi asks the question, why does it attribute the bringing of the sacrifice to Adam, to a man? Says Rashi, that the lesson here is that just like the original Adam, the original man, Adam, the first Adam, he did not bring an offering that was stolen because Adam was incapable of theft because there's no other people around and therefore he owns everything. So just like Adam didn't bring from stolen animals a sacrifice, so to you, when you bring a sacrifice, you have to be like Adam, like Adam, and not bring from stolen animals. Adam, a man, and the name of, of course, the original Adam, he was incapable of theft, so to you, when you bring a sacrifice, you should be like Adam, and you cannot bring a sacrifice from a stolen animal. Seems pretty straightforward, pretty clear, Rashi. Says the Svasemis like this. 
when a man brings a sacrifice, he is atoned. You sacrifice the animal in the temple. You follow all the procedure, of course. The Kohanim, the priests, they process the animal in the way that is prescribed in our Parsha and in the accompanying oral tradition in the Talmud. You bring the sacrifice and the man who offers the sacrifice is atoned for, is expiated, has their sins absolved. How does that work? This is maybe the most critical question of the whole Parsha. I do a sin. There's a blemish on my soul. I take one of my animals and I offer it as a sacrifice. And of course, there's so many different kinds of sacrifices. But the bottom line of all sacrifices is that they provide atonement. I do a sin. I'm flawed. I have a blemish on my soul. I take the animal. I bring the animal as a sacrifice. And my soul is cleansed. If I sinned, if I rebelled against God, how do I get off the hook by offering my animal as a sacrifice? If the animal gets killed, what does it have to do with me? So perhaps we could say, well, you know, you confer your sins on the animal and the animal died for your sins, pardon the inference. But why should you, the bringer of the sacrifice, be absolved via the death the animal. So the Ramban, of course, says that, well, I really, when I sin against God, I'm supposed to be killed. But the Almighty, in his magnanimity, in his benevolence, he said, you know what, kill the animal instead. But if I'm supposed to die, how does killing the animal accomplish the same goal? This is a very good question. Maybe the central question of the Parsha. And the answer is mind-blowing, is life-changing. He says like this, Man draws life and vitality to all the animals. And quotes a verse in Psalms. The verse is talking about the stature of man. Man has lofty, exalted stature. And the way it's described in scripture, Psalms 8, You have made man just a little bit less than the divine. And you have adorned him, i.e. man, with glory and with majesty. And you have made him a master over your handiwork. The Almighty says, man, you lord over all the other creations. Lame the world at his feet, sheep and oxen, all of them, and wild beasts too, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the earth, whatever travels the paths of the sea. Says this Fasem is a very powerful idea and a multi-pronged one. We deliver life and vitality to the animals. And he explains using a concept that there are four fundamentally different dimensions of creations in this world. The lowest level is what's called domain, inanimate creations like a rock. The next level is tzomeach, that's the animate, organic creations like plants and vegetation and trees and the like. 
And then the third level, there's the chai, the living thing, like animals. And then there's the fourth level, which is midaber, the speaker, which are humans. Humans who could speak, who can converse, who can verbalize, who have consciousness. This is the classification of the four different dimensions, four different levels, four qualitatively different standings of creation's domain, inanimate, the lowest level, the animate, the living, and the speaking. This is an ancient Jewish classification. In this world, there are at least four completely different dimensions of creations. And then he drops the bomb. He says that man is the one who transmits life and vitality to the lower three levels of creation. Of course, man is the madaber, is the speaker, higher on this totem pole than animals and plants and inanimate objects like rocks. Man is the one who transmits life and vitality to those three things. Meaning, all life and vitality, of course, comes from God. But there are different filters through which this vitality goes before it arrives at the final receptacle. So, for example, we remember back in Genesis, Jacob has a nocturnal struggle with the angel of Asaph. Asaph, the nation, has an angel through which godly vitality is filtered through to the nation of Asaph. Every nation has an angel who intermediates between God and that particular people. Not just every nation. Every land has an overseeing angel through which the Almighty's flow of vitality and life goes through. Every type of fruit has an overseeing angel that filters the godly vitality through. This is one of the most important ideas in Jewish theology. Everything that is not God, every creation, must be in some way connected to the one source of life and vitality, and that's God. But the closer you are, so to speak, the more spiritually lofty you are. So the angels, there aren't so many, so to speak, intermediate steps between them and God because they're so lofty. Whereas a rock, it's so physical, so, so to speak, distant from God that the godly vitality, the rock, so to speak, connection to God goes through many steps. And every step, it gets diluted, shall we say, a little bit. And therefore, the connection is a bit more tenuous but it's still there. The second anything loses a connection with God, it ceases to exist because there's only one source of existence and that's God. And the difference between the creations, between an angel and a rock, is only how many degrees of separation, so to speak, exist between God and that particular thing. And every nation, every land, every type of fruit even the rock, even the plants, even the animals, certainly the humans, even the angels, every creation has a connection between it 
and God, but the type of connection and the layers of this connection are different. Now, there are some exceptions. For example, we're told the land of Israel has no filters. It's God himself who delivers the vitality to the land of Israel without an intermediary, which, of course, is really good, but it's also really bad. It's really good because we have a direct connection in the land of Israel to God, but it's really bad because we don't have any degrees of separation and therefore, in the land of Israel, there is an intolerance to rebellion. Hence, we're going to read a little bit later on in Leviticus. The land itself is designed to disgorge the sinners from it because this is a land that doesn't tolerate sin. And we can even see historically the land that has been conquered more than any other land, the land that's inhospitable to sinners is the land of Israel because it has no filter. And it's not just the land. The Jewish people were told, we're not like Asaph. We don't have an intermediary angel who is intermediating between us and God. We have a direct connection. Very good, very bad. Very good because we have a direct connection. Very bad because there is less wiggle room. There's less flexibility. We have a shorter leash, so to speak. And... That's why we get punished maybe more than any other nation. We're also told that there are four fruits that don't have an angel intermediating between them and God, and those are the four species that we shake on Sukkot. And the way this shakes out, and like we said, this is a very important principle in, in Kabbalah, in the theological, cosmological understanding of how things work, this extends a bit further. The Rambam the laws of the foundations of Torah 2.7 tells us that there are 10 different levels of angels. The highest level, i.e. the level that's closest to God, is what's called Chayos, and then Ofanim, and then Erelim, and then Chashmalim, and then Srafim, Malachim, Elohim, Bneolim, Kruvim. And the 10th and lowest level of angels is what's called Ishim. And the reason why the lowest level of angels is called Ishim, and the word Ish means man, the reason why it says the Rambam is because when God speaks to man via an angel, which angel does he use? He uses the angel that's closest to man. And that is Ishim, the lowest level of angel. And the highest level of man can touch, so to speak, each other. It goes from God, so to speak, through all these ten levels of angels to the lowest level of angel and the one who intermediates, who has, so to speak, a touch point between angel and the angelic world. And man is the Ishim, and the divine vitality filters through these ten levels of angels, and the touch point between the two is the lowest level of angels, and that's called Ishim. And the Sfas Emes takes this a step further. And my suspicion, my hunch is, that this is an accepted Kabbalistic principle, I have never seen it before, and I'm going to attribute it to the source where I saw it. Says this Fasemis, we, humans, are the angels of the animals. Meaning, just like the divine vitality flows from God 
to the thing that's most close to God, and then it gets a little bit diluted to the next thing, to the next level, to the next level, to the next level, as is described in Kabbalistic literature, from world to world to world to world to us, it doesn't stop there. It goes from us to the things that are lower than us, namely to the animals, to the plants, to the inanimate objects. So to the question of how can I be forgiven with the sacrifice of the animal, here's the answer. If I, as a human, as a speaker, if I am properly slated, properly assigned, so to speak, as being spiritually loftier than animals, I am the one who gives life to the animals. Animal has to be connected to God. Well, how's the animal connected to God? Via the things, via the string, so to speak, of things that are spiritually loftier than the animal. And who is spiritually loftier than the animals? Well, that's the human. And therefore, the animal's connection to God goes through me, the human. I am the one who gives over life from God, so to speak, to the animal. And therefore, when I offer the animal as a sacrifice, the life of the animal can indeed be attributed to me, the person who brings the sacrifice. And therefore, I'm not killing the animal to save me. I am giving life to this animal because the divine vitality, so to speak, filters through me to the animal. And therefore, when I sacrifice the animal, there's a little bit of me, so to speak, or my influence that's being sacrificed. And it makes sense that I can be absolved of my sins as a result. But we're not done yet. Continues the Svasemis. Certainly Adam, the original Adam, he was someone who properly assumed the status of being loftier than animals. He was, after all, the prototype of a human who is higher, who is a notch above animals. And certainly, on a collective level, that is true in every generation. But the individual can be spiritually lower than the animal. And what do we say about a human that's spiritually lower than the animal? We tell him, and he quotes the Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin, Yitushkidamcha. The mosquito preceded you. Humans are not fixed. We are not rigid. We're not static. Our place in this totem pole is dynamic. Unlike everything else that exists in this totem pole. The angel's an angel. Can't change that. The animal instinct can change that. The tzomeach, the thing that sprouts, the animate flower or tree or plant or vegetation, its spiritual standing is fixed. But humans are dynamic. When we are at our best, like Moses, we're above the angels. When we are at our worst, We're below the animals. And therefore, what if a man is lower than animals? And they want to bring a sacrifice. 
Well, in that instance, they're not the one who is giving life to the animal because on the spiritual totem pole, they are below the animal. The mosquito preceded them. And therefore, how can they bring a sacrifice? In that instance, says the Svasemis, this is theft. Rashi tells us, you bring a sacrifice, but don't take an animal that's stolen. So on one level, what that means is that if you steal an animal, that's invalid to bring as a sacrifice. He's explaining it on a much deeper level, on a Kabbalistic level. What this means is that if you are spiritually lower than animals, then you cannot offer as a sacrifice. That is stealing because you are trying to, so to speak, sacrifice the soul of the animal, but that does not attribute to you because you're lower than the animal, this totem pole, and therefore you do not deliver, transmit life and vitality from God to this animal. The sacrifice wouldn't even work based upon how we understand sacrifice is working now. When you do a sin, you yourself need to offer yourself as a sacrifice for God. That's how you fix it. Well, if you are spiritually loftier than the animal, you deliver life to the animal, and therefore the animal attributes its life to you, you kill the animal, you sacrifice the animal, it's almost as if you sacrifice yourself, because the life of the animal comes from you, and you could be atoned. But if you're lower than the animal, if the mosquito preceded you, because the human is dynamic, well, in that instance, you're stealing, the sacrifice doesn't work. So what's the solution? The solution is to submit yourself to the collective. And he goes back to verse 2 of our parsha: Adam ki akriv mitem. When a man, Adam, who offers a sacrifice from amongst you. What does that mean? A man can say, you know what? Maybe me as an individual, and by the way, whenever we say man, we mean mankind, not man versus woman. When a man as the individual could be lower than the animal, but as part of the collective, the man can be loftier than the animals because as a species, on a species-wide scale, the man is always, or mankind, humanity, is always above the animals. And therefore, when a person submits themselves to the collective, they can offer a sacrifice even if they individually are lower than the animals. This is a much, much deeper reading of Rashi. On a simple level, Rashi tells us, well, you cannot use a stolen animal. you got to be like Adam. Adam didn't steal. You don't steal when you bring a sacrifice. But here, the Sfasemis is offering us a much deeper insight into how life and vitality flows from God down to us and down through us to the things that are below us on this spiritual totem pole. It goes God to the angels, and maybe there's 10 different levels of angels, and that's to the speaker, to the human, which goes from there to the animals, to the plants, to the inanimate things like rocks, which, by the way, also have to have a spark of the divine within them, or else they cannot exist. And what do we call the spark within the inanimate objects? We call that subatomic particles. There is movement. There is energy, even in things 
that seem to be inert and lifeless. And Adam is an infinitesimally tiny little Milky Way of activity and movement as the subatomic particles spin around the nucleus. But man is dynamic. Man is elastic. He could be loftier than the angels, but we could also tell him, hey, the mosquito preceded you. You're lower than the animals. And if so, then to offer a sacrifice is theft because you are not filtering life to the animals if you're lower than them. Only when man is above the animals, either due to them being holy and lofty like Adam as an individual, or by them being part of the collective and therefore being associated with the species-wide level and species-wide on that level, the human is always greater than the animal. Well, in that instance, they confer life and vitality to the animal, and thus by sacrificing the animal, we can realistically say that they sacrificed themselves. Or at least they sacrificed something that they were responsible for, and they are thus expiated from sin. What a deep reading of Rashi, and what a powerful insight. I think we can also extend this principle a bit further. I think this principle gives us a framework for understanding the very controversial subject of chosen people. And like we always like to do, we leave the controversial stuff for the end of the podcast. Most of the listeners are tuned out. It's only the diehards that remain and only they're listening and only they get to enjoy this controversy. So what's this whole idea of chosen people? It's a very difficult concept for us to reconcile. It sounds elitist. Is it racist? Is it xenophobic? How can we say that we're better than other people? So first of all, it cannot be racist when Judaism is literally open to every race, creed, and color. And it can't be xenophobic when Jews come from every country in the world. But it does sound quite elitist. What do we mean when we say chosen people? So I think on a simple level, it means that, well, we were given Torah, we were chosen, we were chosen to be God's people, we have his land, we're there to fulfill the world's mission, we're there to teach the world about God. But the Talmud says something very surprising. This is the Talmud book of Yevamos, page 63a. It tells us that all the families of the world, even the families that live in the world or in the land, they do not receive blessing only because of us. All the blessing delivered to all of humanity comes because of the Jewish people. It's a pretty bold statement. Continues the Talmud. Even the ships, the merchant ships, that come from Galia to Aspamia, two cities, they do not receive their blessing only because of the Jewish people. The blessing of the merchant ships of the whole world hinges upon us. And on the flip side, the punishment only comes to the world because of us. 
These are very shocking statements in the Talmud. All commerce in the world hinges upon us. All blessing in the world hinges upon us. All punishment in the world hinges upon us. What does that mean? We seem to be so self-centered. I think this concept that the Svas MS outlines for us, I think it gives the whole subject of chosen people a new dimension. We said that there were four levels of creation in the world. You have the lowest level, the domem, inanimate rocks. That's one level. A level up, you have the tzomeach, the things that sprout, the things that are organic, the things that grow, the things that are dynamic, the plants, the trees, the fruits, the vegetation, those kinds of things, things that grow from the ground. Level two. Level three. Things that are alive. All the animals. Number four, things that speak. Humans. Our sages tell us that with the Jewish people receiving Torah, that created a fifth level, a fifth dimension. Torah creates the ability for man, and of course mankind, to transcend above the level of the mere speaker, level four, to the fifth dimension to become like an angel. We have the Almighty's mitzvos. They give us the tools to isolate our soul and to identify and begin to live as our soul. And that is above the level of a standard speaker, a human, on the totem pole. Thus, perhaps what it means on, on this dimension, chosen people. Chosen people means that because we, via Torah, ascend to this higher level, all the blessing of the world, and as well all the curse, all the divine connection, so to speak, to the world, filters through us. And this is, in fact, what God tells Abraham. All those that bless you, I will bless. All those that curse you, I will curse. And then he adds, Through you, all the families of the world will be blessed. God promises Abraham, you will transcend above man to a new level. And because you were higher, so to speak, closer to God, more spiritual than the regular speaker, you will be the filter of life and vitality to the whole world. That's the value proposition of Torah. The Almighty gives us the opportunity to ascend to a new level, to become like angels, and thereby to be the chosen people who deliver life and vitality from God to the whole world. I like to say that the anti-Semites are right. We do control the world financial system. We do control the weather. We control everything. On a spiritual level, what this means is that via Torah, the Almighty gives mankind the opportunity to ascend above all other members of our species and to become like an angel 
And the example that the Kuzri gives, he gives several examples. He says, man can walk through a fire and not get singed. Man can survive 40 days and 40 nights without eating. Man's face could be as illuminescent as the sun. That's not a normal human that we're familiar with. That's a different level. And that's what Torah offers us. And once we accept that bargain and we ascend to that new level, well, then all of the godly blessing and influence and life and vitality comes through us because we're on a higher level. But of course, that doesn't mean that we should lord over other people. If you do that, you are explicitly rejecting the premise of Torah. But what it means is that as children of Abraham, as descendants of the people that were plucked from Egypt, as people who stood at the foot of the mountain at Sinai, we accept the responsibility for the entire world. In effect, we have become a new class of people We are still dynamic. We can be higher than people. We can be lower than people. We can be lower than animals. We can be higher than angels. But via Torah, we were given the power and the potential and the responsibility to ascend above all. And like we said, this opportunity is available for all humans. All humans who say, I want in, I want to be the Almighty's representative in the world. I want to perpetuate the legacy of Abraham. I want to complete the mission that Abraham began. You are opening yourself up to the opportunity to ascend above other humans, to become part of this fifth class of creation, to earn the tools to become like Abraham and Moshe, go 40 days and 40 nights without eating, maybe even time travel, all these cool things that exist only on that dimension not to standard-issue humans, and also thereby be the filter through which the entire world receives its divine vitality that is the bargain of Sinai, and that, of course, is also the responsibility that our nation must bear. Okay, let's get to this week's A and Q. The question is as follows. The question comes from the first verse. Rashi tells us that if you look in a Torah scroll, you'll see that the Almighty gives commands to Moshe, go speak to the children of Israel, saying, and he gives a whole long list of instructions. But in a Torah scroll, and you can actually make this out in many versions of the Chumash as well, there are often paragraph breaks. And some of them are full breaks where the line is empty, is blank all the way to the next line. And some of them are partial paragraph breaks where you have, you know, nine spaces before the next continuation of the prophecy from God to Moshe. And Rashi in the first verse of our Parsha tells us the reason for this. Why did the Almighty have a break? a pause, if you will, in middle 
of his instruction to Moshe. It's not a new prophecy. It's a continuation of one long prophecy, but a prophecy, instruction, go tell the Jewish people this, that, and the other. And then a pause, a break. And then it continues. Why does the Torah have that? Why did the Almighty pause in between his command to Moshe? Says Rashi to give Moshe a break to dwell upon the message, upon the instruction, to think about a certain concept before you move on to the next concept, to reflect, to think, to ruminate, to cogitate, to digest one message before you move on to the next message. Says Rashi, well, if God is teaching Moshe and Moshe has to have a break to absorb and digest the message before you move on to the next subject, all the more so, if you have a regular human teaching another regular human, a lay person to a lay person, all the more so you have to have a break. Very nice lesson. Every time God spoke to Moshe, there were breaks between subjects for Moshe to absorb the message. And certainly for us, we're simpletons. And we're learning from simpletons, not God teaching Moshe. It's a human, regular human teaching another human. All the more so, you have to let things settle in before you can move on. Maybe we should have a break between the Parsha podcast and the A&Q to let the audience absorb the message. Should we do that? Should we have like a 10-second break? I don't know. People might get a little nervous. Maybe we should do that. But here's the question. Here is this week's A&Q. This principle is true, Rashi tells us. Every time the Almighty tells Moshe something, gives him a message, and there's a break. Why are we waking up right now? The first verse of Leviticus. Why are we only told this now? Hitherto, we have had all kinds of laws and all kinds of breaks. You look, for example, Parshish Mishpatim. It's a litany, a long laundry list of mitzvos, and there's all kinds of breaks between paragraphs. And why were there breaks? Well, Rashi here tells us, for Moshe to think and reflect and absorb and ruminate upon the message before we move on to the next message. Why are we only told about this here? Shouldn't Rashi have told us, maybe back when Moshe started giving instructions to the Jewish people, and there are paragraph breaks in middle of the prophecy, the Almighty is telling Moshe, stop, dwell upon the message, Think about it before we move on. Why only now? When we're talking about sacrifices, when the book of Leviticus begins, only now are we told about this important principle that you have to stop and you have to reflect and you have to think about a message, about an idea, about a law, about a commandment before you move on to the next related law. If you have an answer, please email me, Rabbi Walby at gmail.com. Let's get to last week's Parsha podcast question, and that is, why was Bitzalel chosen and not his father Uri? We spoke last week how Bitzalel had all the credentials and he had all the tools and skills needed to build the Mishkan, and he got those from his antecedents. His grandfather was really righteous, Hur, his great-grandmother, 
Miriam. And because of that, the Almighty endowed their descendant with all the tools and all the wisdom to build a Mishkan. Well, how come it skipped over Uri? That was our question. And several listeners said the answer that I was looking for. And they said that Betzalel, he was 13 years old. His father obviously was older. Betzalel, we can surmise, was a minor at the time of the Golden Calf. And even though Uri may not have been involved in the sin of the Golden Calf, the tabernacle was built as a response to the Golden Calf, as a way to fix and remedy the sin of the Golden Calf. Maybe Uri, because he was an adult at the time of the Golden Calf, maybe he was, to a certain extent, complicit because he was part of the collective that sinned, and therefore he could not be the one to repair the damage. But Salah, on the other hand, had a clean slate. There was nothing holding him back. He had no spiritual baggage. And Betzalel is the one who can repair the damage. My friend Yitzi added, he pointed out that later on in the Torah, the book of Numbers, we read about the story of the spies. The spies go scout the land and they come back with a damning report and... As a result of that, they went for 40 days. The nation will endure 40 years in the wilderness. And everyone who is an adult at the time of the sin of the spies, they won't enter the land. And Yitzi pointed out that you don't imagine every single Jew was someone who partook in this sin. Nevertheless, we are often treated as part of a collective. And therefore, if you are part of that generation, you are part of the people, the nation, the generation who participate in the sin of the golden calf or in the sin of the spies, you get judged alongside them and therefore you are responsible, so to speak, for the deeds of the collective. And therefore, only Betzalel, who was a minor, you would imagine, at the time of the sin of the golden calf, he in no way is complicit or can be held liable in any way for the sin of the golden calf. And therefore, he is clean. He can build the tabernacle. We are part of a collective. Of course, we're judged as individuals, but we're also judged as part of a collective. We are rewarded. And we're often punished collectively as well. Uri perhaps had the pedigree. My opinion, I would imagine he had all the tools that Petzal had. But it is only someone who did not partake in any way in the center of the golden calf that can build the tabernacle, which is there to fetch it.